verses 9 to 11. And let's get those verses before us as I read the text. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Now this small unit of this third chapter has a multiform role in the letter and in the argument of this particular chapter. <clears throat> it has a rhetorical function, as a doctrinal function, it has a redemptive historical function. I want to note the rhetorical function or position to begin and justify treating it as a three-verse unit in this larger argument of the apostle. Now, as you look at its position and you ask the rhetorical question, how does it fit into the apostle's unfolding argument or exposition or correspondence or whatever label you want to put on his thinking here, you want to look back before this unit, in other words, what precedes it in this chapter, and you want to look forward to what succeeds it, what follows in this chapter, and then begin to ask what is the relationship of this three-verse unit to what goes before and what comes after, and that in great measure will address the rhetorical use or rhetorical function of this small three-verse section. Now, as you glance back and consider what we talked about last time, you'll notice the tone of those verses 5 to 8, which we indicated were a bracket in and of themselves. And that which was bracketing them was a type of moral exposition or moral declaration. Can you put a label upon that moral declaration? Is it positive or negative moral relations? It is negative because it is sinful moral behavior. specifically outlined and detailed in verses 5 and 8, but that those two verses bracketing the whole unit. Now, we haven't gotten to verse 12 yet, but as you skim verses 12 to 17, what type of moral relation do you note there? Marge? It is positive, and as you go down from 12 to 17, you will notice all positive emphases. There is nothing negative as was 
the case in verses 5 to 8. All right, so our small three-verse unit is sandwiched between the apostles' negative reflection on sinful moral character and behavior and his reflection on righteous or godly behavior and moral character in verses 12 to 17. In verse 18, he begins a whole different style of rhetorical address. Well, why place this small unit between verse 5 to 8 and verses 12 to 17? Well, the key is in that language, which is found in verses 9 and 10. The relationship between the old and the new. Now, if we were going to place a doctrinal label upon that relationship or that that change, what label or doctrinal category would we assign to it? Marge, you look like you're ready. You're you're waiting for somebody else. Regeneration. Regeneration, yes. So here we find regeneration described as a change from an old to a new man. Actually, the word man is in the Greek text. The American Standard translates itself. That's not actually accurate to the Greek. It would be better to have the word old man there for other reasons. But regeneration is referred to with a number of images. Here, we're seeing an old man, new man image. We have an image from John chapter 3 that you must be born again, a new birth image from our Lord's own lips. We have a resurrection image from the transfer from death to life. The new life that is found in Christ is a life which moves out of the dead in trespasses and sin to the being alive in Christ Jesus. And finally, there is the language in in 2 Corinthians 5 of a new creation. So we have an old creation, new creation transition, a new birth, a new life, new creation, a new man or a new self here. All right, so this multiplicity of ways of thinking of regeneration reminds us that there are dramatic images behind it. The emergence from the womb of death, for instance, the coming to life out of the womb of the tomb or the grave, for instance, the renewal or recreation, which emerges from being a new creation in Christ Jesus. That last uh, pattern, that is the new creation pattern, refers us then back to this uh, section, these three verses, and causes us to think about the imagery that the apostle is using here. Let's ponder that for a moment. What kind of words is he using with respect to what kind of drama? When he uses the word renew, 
we could re, we could retranslate that or put a different translation in there or a different paraphrase in there with the word recreate. Recreate. Now, is there any other language that reminds us of creation imagery? Well, the word create is there in verse 10. So, <clears throat> renewal and recreation or creation anew is part of the apostles' thinking here. What else reinforces that creation motif in these verses? In other words, <clears throat> if the apostle is thinking of this transition in terms of a new creation or recreation, is there other language in these three verses that supports creation imagery? Go ahead, Reba. Uh, putting on the new self, putting off the old self. Okay. Is that particularly a part of the creation pattern? Yes, if I go back to the creation uh, pattern of Genesis 1 or Genesis 2, is that part of that imagery? Okay. If we have an old, new transition here, do we have the reversal there? In other words, if what what is the old here? It is sinful. What is the new? It is righteous. Okay? So if we go back to the creation pattern, is there a pattern there that is parallel to what we've noted here? And now you're nodding your head, Reba, what would it be? So it's the obverse of that. So it was the new transitioned into the old or changed into the old as a result of the entrance of sin and the fall of Adam and Eve. All right. Now, any other language here? All right. So we're, we're, we're getting our minds around the mind of the apostle, in my opinion. We're beginning to think in terms of creation imagery, creation language. What other words here in these three verses remind you of that? Ben? True knowledge. True, true knowledge. Okay. How so? Or by what means? Because in the recreation, they are said to be recreated in the true knowledge of God, not to be reversed. Okay. But what's the word? There's another word that makes your case crystal clear in the verse. This true knowledge arises from The image, and uh, does that remind us of creation language? Yes, it does. It reminds us of the image of God in which uh, God created male and female. All right, any other language here? Anything we've missed? All right, so we have... The old man, new man motif. We have the word created, which, which immediately alerts us to a creation pattern. 
we have the image of creation. That also reminds us immediately of creation. And we have the renewal or the act of creation or new creation or renewed creation as well. I hadn't thought of that, but that's a very good observation. Um, he's a liar from the beginning, as our Lord says. Uh, <clears throat> it is conceivable that that may be not obliquely, but in the mind of the apostle as he uses that to begin the section. All right, so rhetorically then, the apostle has placed a new creation paradigm and new creation imagery between verses 5 to 8 and verses 12 to 17. And he has done this intentionally. In other words, he has placed in rhetorical style these three verses to sandwich verses 5 to 8 and 12 to 17. Why? Well, you see it, don't you? Because the transition between the characterization of sinfulness in verses 5 to 8 and the characterization of righteousness in verses 12 to 17 goes by way of a new creation, doesn't it? It goes by way of a renewal of the image of God in the sinful person. It goes by way of regeneration, doesn't it? In other words, there's no movement from this arena which is dominated by sins of sexual nature, the flesh, verse 5, sins of a verbal nature, the tongue, verse 8. There's no renewal, there's no moving beyond that unless there is a new creation, a regeneration, a new birth, etc., in the process to bring you to verses 12 to 17 and what is characterized there. And you'll have to be patient for 12 to 17 for the next time. Go ahead, Reba, your hand was up. Can this be re- related to the indicative you talked about a couple weeks ago? It would be. In other words, he's sandwiching an, indic- an indicative state here in these three verses between the imperatives that he has in verses 5 to 8 and also in verse 12. <clears throat> put on, once again, in verse 12 is an imperative, and he goes on to use the imperatives of the Christian life, even as he's had negatively done so in verses 5 to 8. So, yes, there's, there is an embarrassment of riches here in these three verses, which was not is not initially obvious, but on reflection, when you look at the vocabulary, the apostle is thinking in these terms, in my opinion, particularly since he's placed it between the two uh, characterizations of man in a sinful state and then in a state of righteousness or forgiveness. All right, any questions about the rhetoric here? Go ahead, Ben. Well, in these these verses, starting at verse 1 up until verse 8, 
you're speaking of the regenerative man. So, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see how we are necessarily addressing the sinful state. Well, he is addressing the regenerative man, but he's addressing the regenerate man in terms of what he once was in verses 5 to 8. Such were some of you. You walked and lived in these things. So having made that emphasis upon what they once were here in these four verses, 5, 6, 7, and 8, now he's going to move on to what they've now become, even though he has started in verse 1, emphasizing that their life is hidden with Christ in God. But here he wants to, to shall we say, reinforce that by a, a verbal and rhetorical transition, actually a doctrinal transition. The, the, we can say he's re-emphasizing it uh, by, by positioning it as that which makes the difference between what you once lived in and what you are now living in. Thank you for the question and observation. Yes, Art. Uh, wouldn't it be even clearer if you, our instructor, would be to lump the first five words of verse 9 in with 5 to 8? No, I don't think so, because there is a break there between 8 and 9, even though it's continuing the imperative style. Because that, that uh, continuous word since is a kind of emphatic continuation of what he had said with the imperative. I like Reba's suggestion that it may be actually reflective of the lying and deceit of the enemy in the garden, a creation motif. I like it. I'm not saying I'm absolutely persuaded of it since... She was the first one to make me think of it. <laughs> so, so anyway, I'd, I'd have to uh, get my mind around that a little better before I'd be more dogmatic. All right, now, there's one other category here that we haven't described because it's behind the old man, new man language. And that's Paul's 1 Corinthians 15 language of the old Adam and the new Adam. So we could say, is he reflecting with this old man a pattern here in the old Adam, the first Corinthians 15, 44 and following? And is he used as a new man here? Is he also reflecting on the new man who is Christ in first Corinthians 15? That's interesting. Uh, and I think it's useful. Uh, but I'm not sure that I can bring the Adamic nature completely into this passage though I don't think it's completely removed either. So nonetheless, I'll leave it as a suggestion <clears throat> for that which may color or enlarge or enhance the old man, new man language, which is explicitly here. All right, now, let's think about this detail with respect to the old man, new man <clears throat> And let's note a couple of other passages where Paul talks about this outside of Colossians. We'll begin with Romans 6, 6. 
where the apostle says that the old man, and he uses the very same language there that he uses here, the old man has been crucified with Christ. <clears throat> there is then this relationship between the old man, even here in Colossians 3, and Christ. And interestingly, the last word in this section, Colossians 3, 9 to 11, is Christ. It doesn't show in your English translation, but that should read, if the Greek text were followed, all and in all in Christ. Last Greek word on that line. So uh, the centrality of Christ is certainly a part of this, and that is reinforced by Paul's use of the crucified Christ in Romans 6. 6. The old man dies as Christ himself dies. Christ himself being suggestive there of identifying with that old man motif vicariously or in a substitutionary manner. So Romans 6, 6 sheds some light upon the apostle's use of this language. He's, used it, he's doing it here. He's going to use it again in his letter to the Romans. And finally, let's take a look at Ephesians 4. Now here we want to turn to the passage and actually have it in front of us. <coughs> Ephesians 4, verse 22. You'll notice the similarity to the language that he's using in Colossians 3 here in the letter to the Ephesian church. Ephesians 4, 22, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. Actually, it's old man once again, anthropos, anthropon in the Greek there, which is being corrupted in accordance with lusts of deceit. Uh, your former manner of life is a parallel to in what you once lived here in Colossians 3, verse 7. And so the Ephesians are also being alerted to the fact that they had once lived an ungodly and sinful life, and they're encouraged to lay aside that old man. And then in verse 24 of Ephesians 4, put on the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now, we want to hold on to that to that language there, righteousness and holiness, <clears throat> because we want to uh, use that later on in our discussion about the image of God. All right, now back to Colossians 3. Having supported the Apostle's use of this language elsewhere in his letters, he is not saying something which is unique here. He is saying something which he returns to in describing the Christian life as it has been transformed. All right, now that brings us to the question of the image of God, which is described here and is, of course, part of the biblical creation narrative. Here, the image is renewed. But what is renewed must first have been endued, that is, 
what has been renewed must first have been provided. What is recreated here implies creation there. What is part of restitution here was pl- implies destitution there. What is part of renewal here, and the word is explicit in verse 10, must have been part of denewal there. So the image here, that word image, the image of the one meaning the image of God, <clears throat> the image of God here is crucial to understanding what the apostle is encouraging the Colossians to pursue. Well, what is this image? What is the imago dei and the Latin phrase? What is the image of God in which he created man, male, and female? And what is the renewal of that image? Romans 8 29 says that predestination includes conformity to the image of the Son of God. Image there being used to refer to the second person of the Godhead. So does image of God mean that we look like God? God looks like us. There are those that believe that. Who are they? Who believes that God looks like us? Very large religious group. The Mormons, that is correct. They believe that God is a man just like we are men. So when it says God made man in his image, then God looks like us and we look like him. They have, <clears throat> they have a multiplicity of gods. In fact, all, all humans are God-like in that sense. <clears throat> now, uh, <clears throat> you, you didn't admit that you were Mormons on, uh, <clears throat> today, and so you didn't take that bait <clears throat> that God's image means that we look like him. What then does this mean to be conformed to the image of the Son of God? Well, some of it we read in Ephesians 4. Righteousness and holiness. Remember that 24th verse of Ephesians 4. What do we have here? Ben pointed this out earlier. Renewed in true knowledge. So we have knowledge righteousness and holiness, which are associated with this image, this image in which man has been created or recreated, and those give us clues as to what the image of God consists in. It doesn't consist in a formal or material representation. It consists in those things which we might say are immaterial, or invisible, but nonetheless real. Even those things which within us are invisible, but nonetheless real. So where do we begin? Where do we begin with the image of God? How are we made in his likeness? 
Not that we are essentially like him. That is, we are like his godness. We have his being in that sense. How are we like him to begin with? Well, let's ask the question, what is God? And the answer to the question is, God is a spirit. John chapter 4. Okay, so God is a spirit. How do we reflect that image? Or do we? We have spirit. We have a soul. We are spiritual beings. So, it is not only that we have a soul. Okay, we have a soul in our being, in our existence. So, God is an existent being. And he has been pleased to give us existent being by creating us in his own image. He is a spiritual being, pure spirit, absolute spirit. We are created spirits. He has made us in his image in giving us a soul or a spiritual dimension. All right, so we begin with the kind of beings we are. And that spiritual nature, which resembles God himself, means that all dogs don't go to heaven because dogs don't have souls or spirits. They are not spiritual beings. Now, I'm sorry to disabuse you, of you that love your pets, etc. There's no reason not to love your pets and treat them well. But my point here is that they are animate beings, animate creatures, I should say, but they do not have souls. They do not have a spirit. They're not made in the image of God. And so there is no destiny of them beyond this life. Read it. Yeah, to say being would be to say person, yes. So we could completely fill it out, a personal spiritual being, if you wanted to be uh, <coughs> most, most definitive about it. All right, so first of all, the image of God consists in our being spiritual creatures. Now, when we look at those language, at those words, <clears throat> beginning with Colossians 3.10, knowledge, that's part of the image of God. To be renewed in true knowledge is referring to some aspect of our own human being, human nature. What aspect would that be? Knowledge you associate with your, with your mind, okay? So, knowledge you associate with your what faculty? Your mental faculty? Give me another word. How about rational faculty? We trust your rational being. God made you in this image because he is a rational being. He has a mind. He has knowledge. He thinks rationally. You reflect that in measure because he has given it to you as a part of his image. He did not make you irrational beings. If you act irrationally, it's because you've perverted or twisted the image. It's not because the image is not there. We want to talk in a, a little bit later about what happens to the image with the entrance of sin. Nonetheless, 
The image of God includes the equipment of a rational faculty or rational aspect, a reasoning feature of human nature. Once again, the animal creation, the the, the animals that were made were never made in God's image. They were made to be named by the one who was in God's image, namely Adam himself. So there is that distinction. They do not have rational faculties. They have instinctual and habitual, habituating faculties, but they do not have rational faculties. All right, so from knowledge here, we get the second part of the image of God, namely the mind or the reason or the intellectual faculty. Now, let's go back to the Ephesians 4 language. If you remember it, You've been created in righteousness and holiness. Let's take the word righteousness. We're saying that this language that the apostle gives us helps us understand what the image of God was originally at the creation. Knowledge refers to the rational faculty which was given to man at the creation. What would righteousness suggest? Moral faculty, very good. A moral faculty in which the right is chosen. So what aspect would we be thinking of understanding or knowledge referring to the uh, the reason? What about choosing righteousness referring to what aspect of human personality? The will, very good. The voluntary faculty. The voluntary faculty. The Latin word for will is voluntas, and that's where we get voluntary as a derivative term. All right, so we have the rational faculty as a part of the image, which has to do with understanding and knowledge. Now we have this moral faculty, which has to do with righteous choices. That's a, uh, that is a voluntary faculty. Uh, What about holiness? You might think that this is the same as righteousness. We said righteousness is a, uh, a, a moral faculty in the sense of choosing righteousness. What about holiness? It, it should be more explicitly the moral faculty in and of itself because it separated itself from sin. The righteousness is the voluntarily choosing that which is not sinful. though the righteousness, though it has a moral component, is more specifically the voluntary aspect, the willing aspect of the human agent. Now, I don't mean that the will isn't involved in exercising holiness, but it's holiness which specifically features that moral conscience, that sense of right and wrong. All right, so we have likeness, As a spiritual being, we have likeness in terms of rational faculty. We have likeness in terms of voluntary faculty. We have likeness in terms of moral faculty. God is a moral being, perfectly moral being, completely separated from sin, perfectly holy moral being. 
even as he's perfectly righteous being. One more thing in the image which is not found in the language of the New Testament, the not found in Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, where we get the most help in helping us understand what the image of God was in the beginning, as it's renewed in the new beginning, which the apostle is talking about here in these verses. One more aspect of human personality, which is like God, the reflection of God's own image. Reason, willing, moral ethics or morality. What, what's the one that we're missing from 1 Corinthians 13? The emotional faculty. Is God an emotional being? Yes, God is love. So, the heart, meaning the emotional center of man, is part of the image of God. This, uh, this element of affection, the emotional faculty, that is part of the image of God. All right, now, from the language that's here, and he only gives us the one word there, uh, true knowledge in verse 10, but from the language which is here, we expand into the discussion of the image, which is also a word that he gives us here in verse 10, to try to be as complete as possible in defining what the imago dei, the image of God, is. It is a spiritual likeness, as we understand from John 4. It is a rational faculty, as we understand from the word knowledge being used here. It is a voluntary faculty, as we understand from Ephesians 4.24. It is an emotional faculty, as we understand from 1 Corinthians 13. And it is a moral faculty with respect to the conscience, as we understand from Ephesians 4, again, with respect to the term holiness. All right, now, that's the traditional definition of what the image of God was at the creation. It was made in God's likeness with respect to having a soul, with respect to having the equipment of a mind, will, and heart, as well as a conscience. But Genesis 1 suggests one additional feature, which has become a kind of storm of discussion not so much recently as in the 80s and 90s in Reformed circles, an additional aspect of the image of God. And as you think of that passage in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image and in our likeness and let him have dominion over the creatures, yes. So the exercise of dominion and the so-called dominion theology, which was extremely hot-button issue years ago, not quite so much a hot-button issue these days, but nonetheless was certainly part of that going back to Genesis 1 and the command for man to exercise authority or rule over the created order. There was no argument about whether, in fact, that was given to man to do. 
the issue was whether and what in what sense and how was it given to man to do and how should it be exercised in terms of uh, uh, incorporating it into the modern culture and the modern lifestyle. So, it is possible to add that exercise of dominion to the image of God since it reflects his lordship over the creation. And man has, of course, consistently done that. In fact, the, uh, the scientific disciplines and particularly the medical disciplines are an ongoing display of that exercise of dominion, understanding how the body and the world and the universe works in order to, uh, <clears throat> to manage it and to exercise rule over it for the benefit of mankind, for the benefit of the whole human race. Somebody had their hand waving. Yes, go ahead, Reba. Oh, uh, you're making a comment about analogical relations. Analogical. Yes, uh, what we've been talking about here with respect to the image is part of what is called in Latin the analogia entis, the analogy of being. So, yes, we're creators in that derivative sense. Uh, that, that would be the exercise of your rational faculties, your understanding and your intellect would fall under that uh, heading. Uh, so there's a richness here which is being renewed and restored and that for the glory of God, namely the one who created the individual or the sinner, I'm sorry, the believer in the first place. All right, now, um, we, we've made a case then that the language here is the language of creation, old and new. Old creation, new creation. Which means that what was lost in the old creation is now being renewed in the new creation in Christ. Now, that raises the issue of how damaged was the image as a result of the fall. And you'll have to stay tuned because it's time for your break and you'll come back and we'll talk about that in the second part. The precise status questionis or state of the question here is since man was made in the image of God in Genesis 1, what became of the image of God in Genesis 3? What is the effect of the fall of man on the image of God? So what do you think? <clears throat> Let's have a vote. Was the image of God destroyed as a result of the fall? Vitiated? Well, then what happened to it? It wasn't destroyed. And incidentally, from this text that we're looking at, how do you know that it wasn't destroyed? Yes, very good, Ben. <clears throat> you can't renew or restore something unless you have something to renew or restore. So <clears throat> the image is there. It needs to be restored. But what's happened to it as a result of the fall? 
If it hasn't been vitiated, destroyed, or annihilated, and it hasn't been obliterated, we haven't been reduced to the level of <clears throat> mere beasts. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm still not... The spiritual part is lost, so you you don't have you don't have a spirit anymore. It's eviscerated. You don't have the knowledge. You don't have the true knowledge of God. Do you have a rational faculty? You do have a rational faculty. <clears throat> so what's happened to the rational faculty? It hasn't been destroyed. It's been what? Twisted. Okay, that's good. <clears throat> Perverted. Turned to abuse, misuse. Turned against the one that made it. All right, so we realize that the image which gives us a rational faculty hasn't been destroyed. Otherwise, we couldn't talk to unbelievers. Believers would be the only ones that could have a rational conversation. So they're, they're using the image that God gave them, but they're using it perversely. <clears throat> they're using it in the service of sin, which dominates their nature. Same thing is true <clears throat> of the moral faculty. Have we lost the moral faculty? Has it been obliterated or vitiated? Perverted. It's been perverted. It's been twisted and corrupted. <clears throat> so it hasn't been removed. Else there wouldn't be a sense of right and wrong. There wouldn't be a sense of conscience, even in unbelievers. That doesn't mean it's a perfect sense of right and wrong. It simply means there is that twinge of conscience that remains in them, as the apostle suggests in Romans 2. All right, so uh, we haven't lost the rational faculty. We haven't lost the moral faculty and sense of conscience. What about the voluntary faculty? Have we lost the will? And all you Arminians will say, no, we have free will. Yes, the will is there, but it's in bondage to sin. Can we say that the whole, that all, that every, all of our faculties are in bondage to darkness and Satan? Uh, yes, but you see, you want to do the whole enchilada. I'm taking them one at a time. Patience, my child, patience. All right. Okay. Now, with respect to the will, the will has been corrupted by the fall. So it's still a free will. It's free to choose evil. That doesn't sound like a free will to me. It's free according to its nature. And what is its nature? Its nature as a result of the fall is sinful. So, to use Luther's title of his most famous book, The Bondage of the Will, the will is in bondage to the sinful nature that possesses it. So, it's really 
it's really imprecise, it's actually wrong to say that man still has a free will. He is a free moral agent. He is at liberty to choose the choices that he inclines to. But that doesn't answer the question of what he's willing to do. His, his choices will be inclined to evil and only evil continually, as Genesis 6 says. That is, he won't be glorifying God with his choices. He'll be glorifying himself or some other created item. <clears throat> the will then isn't free in the sense it's in a state of neutrality. That's what the Arminian doctrine of the will is, that the will is neutral. It's neither inclined to right or wrong until it's moved by something outside of itself. Well, that does not exist. If a will is in a state of neutrality and you're waiting for it to be moved, a will which is in an absolute state of freedom, in that sense, is never going to move. It's never going to make a choice. If it's always in a state of neutrality, indetermined, not determined one way or the other, not determined to good or evil, if you leave it in that condition, it's not going to act. Okay, that's a, that's a brief summary of Jonathan Edwards' treatise on the freedom of the will. He destroys the Arminian argument by saying the will is the voluntary faculty. What determines the will is that which moves that voluntary faculty. What determines the will? As Ben pointed out, the nature of the being that possesses the will. So freedom doesn't belong to the will. Freedom belongs to the agent that has a will. He acts freely, but that doesn't define what the will is acting freely to do. The will is determined by the thing that pleases that agent the most. The, the greatest good in his estimation is what he does. We all do it the same way. The greatest thing that we want to do is what moves our will. And in the Christian lifestyle, the greatest thing we want to do is please God, love him, and keep his commandments. Well, uh, that, that's a, uh, shall we say, a backdoor way of getting to Edward's mag magisterial treatise and answer and defeat and demolish demolition job on the Arminian notion of the will and reminds us <clears throat> that the will is not something of which you can attribute freedom because it's always determined. It's always in a state of being determined by what pleases that will most, but by pleases that nature most. The agent is free. The person that has the will is free. He is at liberty to act upon his choices. But the will is not at liberty to act on anything other than its disposition or its inclination or what it is inclined to do, what its nature inclines it to do. Okay, so when you say free will, popularly you mean free moral agency. So you shouldn't say free will if you're going to be a precise Calvinist. You should say free moral agency. Because as Edwards has demonstrated to the satisfaction of most Calvinists since his time, there is no such thing as a free will. It is always determined by what pleases it most. And that is not freedom, that is determination. That is being disposed and determined by the greatest thing that pleases that will. All right, now that's more than you uh, probably expected on the image of God, but uh, nonetheless, I said, it, I said it was a backdoor way of getting Edwards out in front of the discussion. <clears throat> the image has not been destroyed. The will is still there. The will still wills, 
but it wills according to the perverse nature of the agent that has it. And that, after the fall, is a sinful nature. And finally, with Reba's permission, the emotional faculty. The effect of the fall upon the heart. And obviously, the love of sin, the delight in iniquity, the enjoyment of trespasses and sins, that is certainly part of the heart of the fallen creature. Does that mean that the heart is incapable of affection? No, it has a great deal of affection for that which is contrary to God's own order and nature. But it is still there. And it can be renewed, even as the will that is there can be renewed, even as the reason and mind that is there can be renewed, even as the conscience that is there, the moral sense of there can be renewed. That's what the apostle is talking about here with this language of renewal of that image. That's what happens in regeneration. That's what happens in being born again. That's what happens in being raised from the dead. That's what happens in being made a new creation in Christ Jesus. In measure, in part, not perfectly, in measure, in part, the image of God is renewed and restored. And those aspects or faculties which were given at the creation are renewed during the recreation. All right, so we see the rhetorical function of this section in the epistle because the rhetorical function alerts us to the doctrinal transition. This section is a transition between the old self and the new self, the old man and the new man, the old creation and the new creation, the unborn again and the born again, the dead and the alive in Christ. So the rhetorical Position of this unit alerts us to the doctrinal significance of the, of the bridge that is between that former life in which you once lived and walked, verse 7, and what you are now living in Christ, verses 12 to 17. All right, now, there's one more aspect to consider, and that's the redemptive historical. The clue here is, once again, the old man, new man language. To ground this in a redemptive historical narrative is to acknowledge that it can't be real, it can't be true, it can't be actual unless it's been performed, unless it's been worked out in history, unless someone has taken on that old man uh, nature or that old man aspect and has been transformed into a new man by being changed himself. Christ then takes on the role of the old man vicariously. Christ takes on the role of the old Adam substitutionally in our place. In other words, there can't be this transition for the Colossians with Paul talking about old man, new man. 
unless there is the power of that transformation somewhere in history. And the only place you'll find it is in the last word that he uses in this section, the word Christ. That means Christ must perform this role in his own history. In his redemptive history, this part of our redemptive history must be accomplished. So he puts on the old man. He puts it on. He puts it on with its guilt and its shame and its death and its tarnished image. He puts on that tarnished image of God, which causes his father to turn away from him. He can't be the reflection of his father at that moment when he's derelict upon the cross. Why hast thou forsaken me, O Lord? Because, my son, you bear the image of the ungodly. So wonderful, you see, was his humiliation. So generous was his identification that he would even take that old man tarnished image of God upon himself and bear its reproach. But he does it not in himself as he is God in the flesh. He does it as a substitute for us. On our behalf, he does it. Having put that old man then to death on the cross... He puts on the new man, the new Adam, by resurrection from the dead. He displays his new creation person in righteousness, holiness, and purity, and life, not death. He is the recreated very image of the first man, Adam, as he is in himself the last man, the second Adam. The redemptive historical aspect of this is crucial to its performance, crucial to its realization, crucial to its actualization, crucial to your participating in it. Because if Christ does not participate in it in order to reverse it for you, there is no reversal of it in you. It has to be done in the arena in which the the tarnishing of the image was done. The corrupting of the image was done. His corruptible must put on incorruption. He must go through the process. He humbles himself to do it on behalf of his elect. And thus the grounds, the actualization of the renewed image of God is in the recreation of his Adamic humanity by death to the old and life or resurrection life to the new, and Christo, in Christ Jesus. And those in Christ share this recreation, this renewal, this restoration and restitution of the image of God by means of the redemptive historical reversal performed by their Savior. Where is your image of God renewed? It is renewed in Christ who is renewed in that image in your place and for your sake so that now you can be, as Paul says, renewed in true knowledge according to the image of the one who created it. You're driven. The apostle always drives you back to what Christ has done in your place in the historical arena. And here, 
glory upon grace upon grace, glory upon glory. He bears that tarnished image in your place on the cross and takes that shame and adverse reflection so that he can renew it by his resurrection from the dead and show that he's been recreated himself in the image of God and likeness. I'm not talking about his essential image. I'm talking about his redemptive historical image of God. The image of God that his human nature bears. Any questions about that? Well, that leads us to uh, a few mopping up things in this section. Yes, go ahead, Ben. Thank you. What's the significance of this translation, men versus self? Uh, the significance is it's not uh, true to the Greek. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know why they did it, uh, it <clears throat> because to use the word old man with the word anthropos is in the Greek text there is uh, so obvious, I don't know what they were up to, unless they they uh, were, were trying to talk about self as a center of human personality. That That's the only thing I'd, I, I can suggest as an explanation. <clears throat> this, is a, this is a place where I have to disagree with the NASB, I'm sorry, but uh, it's just not uh, true to the, te- to the Greek text that's there. All right, now, back in verse 11... He talks about this uh, uh, union in Christ. Christ is all and in all. As a result of this renewal or being renewed in the image of God. And he talks about ethnic distinctions. There are no ethnic distinctions, Greek or Jew. He talks about ritual or ceremonial distinctions. There are no ritual ceremonial distinctions, circumcised or uncircumcised. And then he uses the word barbarian, and in the Greek it's barbar. It's, it sounds just exactly like the word that comes over into English. The barbarian here is not the savage, not the uh, unrestrained pagan. Barbarian here in this culture and into the arena in which Paul is speaking, in Colossae, when they would read Barbar in this text, they would not think of a savage. They would think of a person who does not speak the Greek language. So a barbarian in Hellenistic or Greco-Roman uh, <coughs> culture was a person that did not speak Greek. There's no discrimination against such a person. And that's, of course, the point here. There are no discriminatory distinctions here within the identification with Christ, within Christian bounds and Christian fellowship and Christian circles. But we come to the word Scythian, and I've given you a connection, uh, an internet connection to a very fine article by Edwin Yamauchi, whom I regard with a great deal of esteem, a great historian. And that article is uh, a, a thorough evaluation of the word Scythian in this passage. It's the only place the word occurs in the Bible. And so Yamauchi, who's an expert on uh, Near Eastern history, has given a very fine uh, three-page article on its, on its meaning. <clears throat> uh, I'm going to boil down that article to a couple of uh, basic points. Who were the Scythians? Does anybody know who the Scythians were? Yeah, north of Israel. How far north? Quite a bit north. Yes, how far, how far north? What, pardon? As far as Moscow? Not, not as far as Moscow, but you got into the right country. 
<laughs> okay? They are Russian. Okay? What part of Russia? Not as far as Moscow. Pardon? Western Russia. Okay. Uh, north of what? North of the Black Sea, exactly. Okay. The steppes of, of Russia, north of the Black Sea and east, over towards Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan and other places. They were a nomadic, uh, uh, tribe, nomadic civilization, quite, uh, sophisticated, uh, <clears throat> brilliant jewelry, gold and, uh, bronze jewelry, but they were savages. And so the word Scythian here is equivalent to the savagery of the Scythian hordes as they raided, pillaged, looted, raped, and killed, and murdered, and cut people's heads off, and used heads for drinking bowls. They would actually cut the heads in half and then use the base of the skull for a drinking bowl. <clears throat> Practiced human sacrifice, uh, killed their horses when, they, when their leaders died, killed their leaders' horses, and so they buried them with their leaders. Uh, <clears throat> amazing tumuli, these these burial mounds that they find across the steppes of southern Russia in which they dig into them and they find these remnants of the Scythian civilization. Okay, so the name Scythian would send a chill up the spine of anybody reading this, including the Colossians, because the Scythians were notorious in this period. The Greek and Roman historians had written about them, so it was a, it was a name that would scare the bejabbers out of you if you heard it, because they were savages, brutal savages, torture, etc., which I've already described, and I haven't described the the, the depths of it, but it was it, it was root root savagery. But even in Christ, the savage is renewed in the image of God. His savagery is crucified; it's put to death. He has become a new person in Christ Jesus. It's the same, same is true of slave and free, which Paul will describe later on at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. We're reminded by this verse that in Christ the distinctions are removed. Racial, social, cultural, economic, backgrounds, they're removed. There are no distinctions in Christ. In heaven, you're not going to know whether you're black, white, yellow, or red. It won't make any difference. In Christ Jesus, those distinctions have passed away. All in Christ are one. Christ is the center of their life and of their being and of their existence and of their 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 drama in and of itself because he's brought them into a union which transcends all human relations, cultural barriers, racial distinctions, etc. Let it be true in your association. Let it be true in your church that there are no discriminatory distinctions in Christ Jesus. Any questions? Ben. When it puts Christ, then it says Christ is all and in all. It's just the other way around. Yes. Um, it's very difficult in an English translation to do it the way the Greek reads. So it's not impossible. 
But I point out that the last word in the verse is Christ, emphasizing the unity. And so they put Christ at the beginning of the clause in order to make it sound better. And it reads, there's a better reading or hearing of it in English. Right, but there's no in Christ. There's just no end Christo here. Okay, it's just it's just an emphatic Christ stuck at the end of it. And there's not even an and here. He has slave, they have slave and free. But all the English translations do this. And they're doing it for ease of reading or, or comprehension. But you leave out the stunning character of what Paul says when he puts Christ at the end of this list. Christ is all and in all of everything. <laughs> yes, Art. Yes, he is the subject. He's put at the end. But why does Paul hold the subject off to the end? He holds he holds it off in order to place it in the emphatic terminal position. So so it, it is going to grab you if if you read if you read Greek and know Greek, it's going to grab you. Yes, Reba, you had. Also the, those two words, all yeah, let me look at the Greek here for a minute to see where the Greek verb is. No, there is no verb in the clause. It's inserted by the English translation to well, make it readable. The words is and in. But is all and in all Christ. <coughs> and, and here's the Greek. But all and in all Christ is the Greek. So there's no verb in it. It's understood. Even in the Greek style, it would be understood even though it's not literally in the text. Because the verb to be is always a verb of identification. So you can leave it out and your, under, your identification is understood. The all, you know, no verb, no verb to be. Christ means it's understood to be Christ. Oh, I agree. I, yes, I agree with that. I, 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 but I, I would say it's awkward to try to put it the other way because we don't think like Greeks entirely. Okay, any other questions? Well, let's close in prayer. Lord, we bless you for this redemptive transition. Not only the little transition by this bridge from the old to the new life, but the transition which your son accomplished in history by taking the curse of that old life upon himself and by his resurrection bringing to light and life that great new creation in himself. We thank you for the understanding of what the image of God is and we treasure it and bless you for renewing it in us, in our hearts in our minds, in our reason, in our wills, in our moral conscience, we pray that you'll enhance its delight in serving you and in obeying your commandments. And above all, Lord, we pray that Christ might be our all in all.
and the all in all of the Christian church, both now until he comes again in glory. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.